The BBC is undeniably one of Britain's greatest cultural institutions, having produced some of the greatest shows of all time, including some of my favourites, The Thick of It, Jonathan Creek, Pointless, Sherlock, Only Falls and Horses, Desert Island Discs, as well as all-time classics such as Blackadder, Monty Python, Doctor Who, EastEnders, Great British Bake Off, you know, David Attenborough. The list goes on. Um, however, the BBC is in peril. It's faced with a government who have imposed extreme funding cuts over the past 10 years. This alongside recent campaigns from the right to defund the BBC. Um, you know, claims that it's no longer fit for purpose. It cannot rival services such as Netflix or Amazon Prime. Calls to scrap the license fee. This has led to many people, overwhelmingly from the right, calling for an end to the license fee and a move to different funding paths, such as advertising or subscription-based services. This is outside of the huge debate, the huge um, argument around the supposed impartiality of the BBC with attacks from the right, claiming it's too left-wing, too liberal, too woke, and to some on the left calling it a mouthpiece for the establishment. In today's episode, I'm joined by Patrick Barwise, Emeritus Professor in Management and Marketing at London Business School, uh, former chairman of consumer organization Witch, and co-author, alongside Peter York, of the book The War Against the BBC, which is out today, Thursday, 19th of November, and published through Penguin. Uh, The War Against the BBC, subtitled How an Unprecedented Combination of Hostile Forces is Destroying Britain's Greatest Cultural Institution and Why You Should Care, is an insightful look into many of the threats the BBC is facing. It debunks common myths and attacks against the BBC and uh, warns of the dangers of introducing advertising or a subscription-based service to the BBC and just makes the case on so many fronts for why it's so important for us to protect the BBC and the license fee. I mean, I found it to be an incredibly eye-opening and engaging read. Uh, I'd highly recommend listeners to check it out. Uh, There'll be a link in the show notes if you're interested. So, yeah, I spoke to Patrick Barwise earlier this week for a discussion all about his book and all of these different aspects. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Patrick. Hello, nice to meet you. So um, the book opens with a reference to the song I'm Proud of the BBC yes. by Mitch Benn, uh, which is essentially like an extensive list of, of the different services and uh, shows that the BBC has offered over the years, all for £157.50 per year per household. You know, a lot of people use this comparison of like, it's only like 40 something P per day. And what you get is all of the six national TV channels, the regional channels, the uh, national and local radio stations, the online services, BBC iPlayer, BBC Sounds. So I want to know why, why is it, in your view, that a lot of the public and a lot of people see the BBC as not being good value for money? Well, it's not clear how many people do see the BBC as not value for money. There are quite a few people who claim that quite a few people see the BBC as not value for money. So a very good question is given that... Um, on any objective standards, uh, the BBC is extraordinarily good value for money. So it is 43 pence per day for the whole household. And by the way, not all the licence fee money goes to the BBC. So 8% has been sort of pinched by various politicians to fund various other things. So why is it that this um, tax, but it's it's really a very low tax compared to, you know, other things which are much bigger, uh, council tax and things like that is 10 times as big. Why is there so much sort of fuss made about the BBC licence fee? Um, And I think that uh, there are several reasons. Uh, Probably the most important Mm. reason is because the BBC is the UK's most trusted source of news, that inherently makes it highly political because... Uh, I mean, one of the uh, journalists we quote, actually a Telegraph journalist, uh, uses the uh, analogy of the football referee and, and the supporters of each side thinking the referee is biased against their own side. And so 
the very fact that the BBC uh, is such an important source of news and discussion of current affairs and so on, and inevitably members of the public, especially those further away from the centre, tend to see it as biased against their position, and of course politicians even more so, that uh, automatically sort of raises the stakes. I think there's then a second reason to do with the compulsory license fee, which has always been there, but of course in an age of of not just um, lots of pay TV channels, but now online TV as well, Netflix and all that, then people say, uh, why should I be forced to pay for this if I don't actually, you know, watch any of the services or use any of the services? And that is, in principle, a, a reasonable argument, uh, except it's not an argument many people use about other public services, which, you know, I mean, you, you don't get a, a major fuss about uh, what people without kids are spending indirectly on schools, uh, which, uh, again, is much more expensive than the BBC. But um, there's, there seems to be something about uh, the BBC which makes this sort of an issue. And that argument in principle, the fact that in practice no one has ever provided any evidence that there's a material number of people who pay the licence fee and don't get any benefit, that doesn't seem to worry them. It's, it's a sort of argument in principle. But I think the underlying reason is that particularly people on the right, who are actually very well served with newspapers, um, you know, object to the fact that they're having to pay for uh, the BBC, which in their perceptions is biased against their political viewpoint. I mean, a big, a big topic, you know, is debated on either side, as you mentioned, is the impartiality yes. or supposed impartiality of the BBC. Yes. I mean, you do go very in-depth in, in, in your book about various research that has been taken out on the BBC by independent researchers and universities to assess the impartiality of the BBC. And if anything, it's shown... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but if anything, it's shown that the BBC's bias is skewed to the right. It's marginally skewed to the right. If it, There are different kinds of research which you can do. Um, one type of research is, is systematic content analysis. And um, there's content analysis which is, which is done by university academics. Now, of course, if you're on the a certain area of the right beyond a certain beyond a certain point of the spectrum then you regard university academics as a suspect source because we're all seen <laughs> as left wing and and you know i've i've been at london business schools in 1976 so you know, london business school is not a sort of semi marxist organization <laughs> nevertheless now when we look at that type of research what we find is that as you say the the BBC uh, coverage of of sort of emotive political issues uh, tends to be sort of pretty centrist and and balanced. Sometimes what we call a false balance, which is if you like, you can have two sets of people both talking nonsense, um, or one talking nonsense, and and it's sort of giving equal airtime to both. That would include on issues like the economic impact of Brexit. It would include things like climate change. Now, on both of those issues, among experts, there's something fairly close to a consensus. And so that type of false balance is, uh, I think, not a good solution. If someone is making statements, let's say, about climate change, which are not supported by the evidence, then the journalists should be knowledgeable enough to challenge them. So, I, you know, I think there's that. But um, it, there's a tendency for uh, the BBC to give more airtime to the government of the day. But the best research we've seen shows that that has happened more under Conservative governments and under Labour governments. So it's not a sort of simple left-right thing. It's, it's quite nuanced but it's certainly inconsistent with the very widely believed view uh, among people on the right that the BBC is systematically left-wing. Mm -hmm. 
Um, on Brexit, again, we have something complicated that BBC was on an absolute hiding to nothing on Brexit because it's so divisive and so emotive. And uh, again, there have been times when they've fallen into this false balance trap. We have Brexiteers saying the BBC is absolutely full of Remainers, which is probably true, just if you look at you know, the demographics, um, but then saying, and its coverage of Brexit has been hugely anti-Brexit. Now, the, the content analyses say that isn't true. And uh, then sort of anecdotally, I mean, in particular, sort of Lord Adonis, who got particularly exercised about this, has sort of said that, you know, Nigel Farage has been on Question Time 32 times, which is sort of more than anyone else pretty much during this period. So the idea that, you know, the Brexit perspective has not been not been given its fair crack of the whip is is demonstrably not true. But these things are these things are not simple issues. Now the subtitle of the book is uh, how an unprecedented combination of hostile forces is destroying Britain's greatest cultural institution and why you should care. Now you've mentioned some of those hostile forces already, some of the threats that the BBC are facing. One of the most significant threats that the BBC faces you have senior figures in government, even Boris Johnson. You know, I think in the book it states um, the BBC has never faced a more hostile prime minister than Boris Johnson, mm. even more so than Margaret Thatcher. Mm. Now, a big part of that is, uh, or at least was, Dominic Cummings's view of the BBC. I was, uh, I was sort of amazed, but mm. not surprised, I guess, to to hear that in a blog post in 2004 he wrote of wanting a sort of American style media ecology dominated by like a Fox News type of TV news channel, uh, like Rush Limbaugh style right-wing phone and radio stations. And no limit on political advertising. So exactly, we, <clears throat> we've just seen the US election um, and just how divided the US is um, and the me- the media... Uh, and the, the kind of media ecosystem and political communication ecosystem that he was recommending, um, you know, I can't quantify how much of the division in the US is caused by that, but it's obviously a major, major factor. And those blog posts, the more people in this country who know about those blog posts, the better. Mm. I would urge the young Fabians to publicise Dominic Cummings' 2004 blog posts. It was brilliant of The Guardian to unearth them in the deeper recesses of the, of the internet and publish them in, in January. I didn't know about them. And um, most people still don't. One very striking thing about them is they're terribly un-British. Okay, so we have this sort of representation as if only people on the right are the true patriots. And the BBC is uh, sort of woke and kind of anti-British and all of that, which is not true. I mean, as, as my co-author, P.T. York, has often said, the clue's in the name. It's the British Broadcasting Corporation. And yet any sort of normal um, across the whole sort of respectable political spectrum in the UK, the middle 80 percent, anyone who sees those blog posts in my experience, is pretty shocked uh, because Fox News has clearly been inflammatory and has uh, reinforced division. Yeah. The shock chop phone-ins, the same. The way in which money, very often dark money, has had a huge impact uh, directly and indirectly through the think tanks and all of that uh, on US politics. And the fact that, that Cummings purely for party political advantage. You know, there's no pretense at saying the reason I think we should have this uh, ecosystem is because it's in the public interest. Mm. It's purely that, you know, the BBC is the enemy of the right and we therefore need to weaken it and introduce more right-wing and and big money uh, voices uh, into, into British politics. And I think that most... Brits, apart from the far-right populists, maybe, would be pretty shocked by that. Now, we've now 
just as the book was coming out, we've now entered, entered this new sort of very unpredictable phase in which the you know, whole testosterone level of number 10 has suddenly gone right down. Um, and th the question is, to what extent does that actually lead to um, a dialing down of this sort of hyper-aggressive uh, Cummings policy, including the attacks on the BBC? And the answer is, I don't know. I mean, no one knows. Now, Johnson himself, it's very hard to tell what Johnson's sort of real beliefs are um, apart from wanting to be prime minister, which, which you know, has been clearly rather consistent. But he has sort of revealed himself to be very hostile to the BBC. And certainly when he had Cummings in place, he was much less uh, procedurally respectable than Margaret Thatcher was. So Margaret Thatcher, for instance, believed that the BBC should be funded, at least partly by advertising. but she set up an independent review mm -hmm. and the independent review very quickly came up with the correct answer, which is the BBC shouldn't be funded by advertising for reasons which no one seriously disputes now. Um, and she accepted that. There are two reasons they picked up, which is why advertising, which are why reasons why advertising on the BBC would be a bad idea. The first is that the revenue would overwhelmingly come from the um, commercial TV companies, uh, ITV and Channel 4 at that time. Um, and so it would actually reduce the amount of money available to put into programmes because you're just sort of moving moving the same fixed pot of money around. And secondly, um, it would uh, give the BBC an incentive to put on programmes which delivered audiences which advertisers value, which tends to be big audiences. And therefore... There's, it affects the incentives uh, for the BBC. There are actually two other reasons uh, which we mention in the book, which, oddly enough, it, it, in its 223-page report, neither of these is mentioned. The first, which one would have thought is rather obvious, which is that audiences actually prefer not to have their viewing and listening interrupted by commercials. Which is, and that is clearly the case. And oddly enough, there is no mention of that. The less obvious thing is that um, in order to get a certain amount of advertising, so-called net advertising revenue um, into, uh, let's say, Channel 4 or ITV to spend on programmes, if you work your way through the costs both within the broadcaster, but also between the client writing a cheque and how much of that cheque finds its way to the broadcaster, because there are lots of agency commissions and production, all sorts of things, then it's actually quite an expensive way of doing things as well. So there are the, the, the hidden overhead costs of advertising funding are higher than most people realise. Now, I'm a marketing professor. I'm not anti-advertising. But um, and you, you can't really have a market economy without advertising. And I'm a great fan of TV advertising as well, which, which you know, has tremendous sort of strengths and, and so on and pays for a lot of content. But it's not a free lunch. And um, so, uh, you know, even if you don't get into the question of do consumers pay for advertising, which is a more complicated question, if you purely look at the cash flows, then in round terms, if the advertiser spends £100, £80 is then available to spend on programmes. Now, that's, that's a much higher overhead than the licence fee. The licence fee is 2.8%. Okay, so um, it's, it, the, the arguments against advertising are so strong that I don't think that when we look at the future funding of the, of the BBC, anyone will spend very long looking at that option. In the book, um, you make comparisons between the BBC and other public services like schools and the NHS. So I, I guess what I would like to know is if the government were to make decisions which undermine the BBC or threaten the BBC's future, uh, then what would, the, what would the fallout of that be like? What would, the, would there be a public outcry or backlash against that, similar to that that we've seen in relation to the, the public's attitudes towards the NHS and schools? 
etc. I, I think that the, the government is on very dangerous ground if it seriously undermines the BBC in a way in which the public realises. That's, that's, so, for instance, the funding cuts, George Osborne's funding cuts, introduced through an outrageous process in which the only person consulted was Rupert Murdoch, not Parliament, not the public. Now, the cumulative effect of those funding cuts in 2010 and 2015 is that the net public funding of the BBC at the end of last year was 30% less in real terms than 10 years earlier. Now, that is an extraordinary depth of cuts, and it's quite remarkable that the BBC has managed to sustain the quality of its services, given that it's now having to compete against Netflix and all those people, business, you know, for a lot of the content. So the real content costs are going up, the real distribution costs are going up, because the BBC now has to fund online distribution and broadcast distribution in parallel. So it's having to spend more on distribution. It's having to spend more on content, particularly in the expensive areas like drama. Uh, You know, the crown, the the BBC couldn't have afforded, you know, put on the crown. Um, And um, nevertheless, it's managed to sustain the services at a remarkably high level. I was amazed to read in the book about the extent to which the funding for the BBC was cut. Please, please publicise it, Louis. This is yes, again, definitely. as with the with the Cummings two thousand and four blog post. The more that we can get the wider public to realise just how savage these cuts have been, as well as what an outrageous process they were I mean, behind closed doors with with a baseball bat, essentially. Um, now the Beeb should have stood up to to, to, to Osborne in twenty fifteen, as they did in twenty ten, and I suspect he would have backed down. But they didn't, and they were wrong. They're now under new management, and um, but we're left with the consequences. Yeah, and and these funding cuts. I mean, it's argued in the book that obviously this had a, a huge impact on the BBC's ability to create content, but it, you know, it still managed to do so. It's still soldiered on. It's also affected its ability. So far, well, yeah, so far. Um, it's it's also affected um, the BBC's ability to innovate. For example, you mentioned the threats or the perceived threats from subscription-based services like Netflix. The BBC, if funded correctly, would be able to rival these. You know, it'd be able to adapt to the the, the changing media environment and be able to create more suitable content for younger audiences. Um, that's the case that you you make in your book. And um, yeah, go on. Uh, yes, I, I completely agree. I think that the um, there are lots of things we would like the BBC to do more. One of them is, is, as you mentioned, is there's this issue of how do you invest more in content and services for younger audiences without alienating and losing your older, more traditional audiences? And the answer is um, that really depends on on resources. Uh, Similarly, there's the issue of uh, the BBC being perceived, particularly in, in places like the famous... Red Wall constituencies, which everyone's uh, quite rightly very concerned about right now, but also in Scotland and so on, um, the BBC being perceived as too London-centric. I have to say, um, I, th- I mean, the whole country is perceived as too London-centric, and, you know, with some reason. But when when the BBC spent a lot of money, you know, in, in Salford building up the, the, the media city, which, again, is part of a sort of local, out-of-London uh, media and, and creative industry sort of ecosystem. And of course they do the same in, in Glasgow and Edinburgh and Cardiff and Belfast and Bristol and so on. But that particular sort of major shift of resources away from London, then they're criticized for spending so much money. Okay, So one of the things that you will see with many of these debates about the BBC is that there's a strong element of catch 22. So for instance, the most valid criticism of the license fee is that it's regressive in the sense that poor people pay the same as rich people. But when people like me start talking about replacing it with something like a percentage levy on council tax or on the electricity bill, which would therefore uh, be much more progressive because, you know, bigger, richer families spend more on electricity and live in bigger houses and pay, then, you know, the Daily Mail entirely focuses the discussion on 
the people who might end up paying a bit more. Yeah. Okay. So the the it's a, that, that there are a lot of catch twenty twos like that. I mean, one of the reasons there is this sort of catch twenty two effect is ultimately because it is a public service broadcaster. Mm. It has the interests of the public at its core. Mm. And there's always going to be people claiming that it it does not represent them or their views or it's too. I mean, you you in the book there's a whole um, section about the idea of the BBC being too woke. Mm. I mean, one thing we show uh, in the book is if you look at the actual amount of stuff the BBC puts out, it, you know the sheer volume is so astonishing and the volume of consumption is so astonishing. It's undoubtedly the case that the BBC, you know probably every day is is offending some people how could it not given the sheer scale of its of its output and consumption i think what we do show we pick up in particular a spectator article by james dellingpole yeah uh, yeah was about about bodyguard yeah. which that his his indignation about the various portrayals which he thought was sort of um, what he called PC bollocks. Yeah. And we show that actually, you know, at that time, the Met did in fact have a lesbian commissioner and we had a Muslim home secretary and a Muslim mayor of London and yeah, so on. Yeah. So it was actually rather an accurate reflection. We then quote another um, spectator article by, by another journalist who, who then says, well, if you think the BBC is woke, wait till you see Netflix. So this, this whole sort of woke thing, uh, I mean, we've, again, we've just got the crown and all of these complaints about uh, them not following history. Hmm. And, you know, I don't know if you know, there's Charles Moore who said that, that uh, Olivia Coleman shouldn't have been cast as the queen because she has a left-wing face, <laughs> um, whatever wow. that is. Now, um, everybody laughed at him. But, you know, this sort of latest uh, controversy about did Louis Mountbatten have that conversation, that bitter conversation on the phone with Prince Charles and how wicked it is to misrepresent the board. Can you imagine the scale of criticism there would have been if it had been a BBC programme, not Netflix? Yeah. So it's, it's a very interesting thing that the scale of criticism is just so much more of the BBC now, we have to make a distinction between organized criticism and individual opinions. So when we look at the view of the general public, what we find is a spectrum in which there are certainly um, people, who they tend to be older, they tend to be right-leaning, who think the BBC leans to the left. There's a slightly smaller number of people who tend to be younger, who tend to be left-leaning, who see the BBC as very establishment and leaning to the right. And then there's actually a slightly larger group of people who see the BBC as essentially impartial or doing its best to be impartial. You get a quite different pattern when you say, what about sort of organized attacks on the BBC by think tanks and by newspapers and by politicians and so on? What you then find is there's this huge skew to the right. And we speculate on why is there this sort of gap between a sort of symmetric, almost symmetric um, set of opinions among the general public and the fact that these organized attacks, the war against the BBC is overwhelmingly from the right. And what we speculate is, is that there are several reasons. One of them is more resources, uh, actually for sort of putting, putting resource into analysis, like there's, a, there's an organization called uh, Newswatch, yeah. which always um, stacking the BBC for being anti-Brexit, and there's nothing equivalent on the other side. Uh, and that's and that is two people working full time for over twenty years now, and that's all they do. So there's resources for that. There's also the fact that our newspapers tend to be right leaning. So there's the sort of distribution advantage. In addition, of course, there's a sort of ideological issue that it tends to be people on the right who ideologically disapprove of the license fee, mm -hmm. um, which is not an issue for people who are left-leaning. Commercially, uh, it's particularly um, Rupert Murdoch, you know, over the years, the BBC's biggest enemy, so he has a commercial vested interest in weakening the BBC. Um, and then there's a speculative 
thing which we can't prove, but we have one rather delicious example of, which is the illusion of being representing the silent majority. And I think this is a researchable question, and I hope I can provoke some of the academics working in this area to do some work on this. But there was this article which basically misquoted Corbyn after the election and said, you know, we are the many, they are the few. And the BBC is representing, you know, a small London, North London liberal elite um, and is out of touch with most ordinary people. And so the fact that when you do proper market research based on statistically representative samples, what you find is this sort of divergence of opinion, which is almost symmetric. When people on the right are talking about it, and this applies to, again, people like Philip Davis MP, who I debated this with quite recently, because the constituents who talk to him and the people who write to him, similarly, um, you know, journalists on, on the Telegraph, you know, their, their mailbags are full of people complaining about how left wing to be. And so they think that's a sort of representative sample of ordinary people. Hmm. And um, so uh, it's a very, very interesting issue about, uh, and I think this is probably true of many people in politics, they think they're speaking for more people than they are speaking for. But I don't think, I think that applies less on the left. We spoke a lot about the right-wing attacks and the sort of um, free market um, thinkers and obviously their resistance to the license fee. I'd, I'd like to know more about the, the attacks from the left that the BBC faces. Surely having a public service broadcaster, having the BBC, is a very left-wing idea, having a sort of broadcaster who is reliable, is trustworthy. Well, I think that they, there's, well, I, I agree with you. There's several things in there. The, the issue of trustworthy news, um, in the UK, we have regulations which say that broadcast news, not just the BBC and not just the you know, commercial broadcasters, has to be, quotes, duly impartial, which they don't have in the US. So it, despite Cummings's desire to have a UK Fox News, you couldn't have a UK Fox News unless you got rid of those regulations, which, of course, people like Cummings would be in favour of, as opposed to newspapers, which everybody knows and the public knows that um, newspapers are not an unbiased source of news and, and analysis. They would, in general, expect the newspapers to report accurately, but they would also know that they report selectively and they interpret um, in, in a way which reflects their proprietors and editors' views. And it, the point is that the public broadly understands that and if you ask the public, do you think this is a good thing that we have these rules for impartial news and current affairs among the broadcasters, they overwhelmingly say yes. And so right across the political spectrum, the public, uh, apart from maybe on the far right, and I don't know whether there are some people on the far left, and as you know, they, you know the cliche that the far left and the far right converge um, <laughs> Like a lot of cliches, there's you know more than a grain of truth in it. We have this extraordinary thing where the Conservative Manifesto last year was written by two people, one of whom, Munira Mirza, um, you know, is, it was at the Revolutionary Communist Party, um, and Claire Fox or Lady Fox, as I must call her now, um, you know, also ex-RCP. So we have this rather bizarre thing like that. But right across the sort of middle ninety percent. Um, of the general public, you know, they're very clear about that, that they value that impartiality. Uh, this question of why would the BBC be attacked from the left? Um, first of all, there would be some people on the far left, and I would include the RCP as, as far left, um, if they're sort of extreme libertarians, which is the way that the Revolutionary Communist Party has reinvented itself, then they're sort of they they're very similar to the non-violent far right, the Sovaye far right, in saying, well, let 
let the best ideas win. You have a marketplace of ideas and let the best ideas win. So why would you? And they would call it censorship. And in fact, if you go to the furthest fringes of the left, you've got that. Second, we have a very specific thing about Jeremy Corbyn, that the sort of enthusiastic supporters of, of Corbyn, like the far left always, has believed that if only people could hear the argument they're making, the scales would fall from their eyes. And people of my generation remember Tony Benn. And, you know, <laughs> whenever there was a sort of far-left manifesto for the Labour Party and the, the, the public sort of vastly rejected it, then <laughs> they would sort of pick themselves up. And, and Wedgie would say, well, if, you know, we didn't explain socialism properly. And so that is a sort of Corbynite view. They also quite rightly say that Corbyn has over many years been monstered in the right-wing press, which he has been. And I think that um, the BBC, and, you know, we talk about the Hatgate thing, in oh, which gosh, yeah. the Corbynistas, and I, as far as I can see, they genuinely believe that the BBC photoshopped the picture of Jeremy Corbyn to make him look Russian. <laughs> Uh, there's uh, the particular thing around Corbyn supporters who believe that the BBC is just part of the mainstream media, media which has just treated uh, Jezza, you know, unfairly. And uh, then there's also, of course, the fact that the license fee is is quotes regressive. Now, it's it's a very small amount of money. Having said that, the majority of people who vote Labour you know, I think are pretty supportive of the BBC and see it somewhat in the same way as they as they see the, the NHS. Even though it's a, sort of a more recent situation, um, there's some mention of, of uh, COVID-19 and the pandemic in the book. One of the points that is made, it touches mm -hmm. on like a larger point about news reliability and trustworthiness mm -hmm. and and I guess mm -hmm. the impact of like fake news and and if I'll just I'll just quote it. It says, for instance, if and when we finally have a safe, effective, widely available COVID nineteen vaccine, how many people will refuse it, putting themselves and everyone else at risk because they believe long discredited anti vaccination conspiracy theories, or perhaps even think that the pandemic itself is a hoax or conspiracy? And that's obviously, you know, we're, we're getting reports now of successful vaccines that are. 90, 95% effective, which is, you know, fantastic news mm. and it gives us all great hope for the future. Mm. Um, but that does not come without the, mm. the uh, reactions of, you know, a few people, but I think a significant amount of people who are very much uneasy about mm. vaccinations. Well, I think actually the, the, there are two groups of people. It's, it's a very important distinction. I think there's a small number of anti-vaxxers who would tend to be older and who would tend to believe in other conspiracy mm. theories. And one thing we know from actually quite recent research by Zurich University is that they did, a, I think, a 12 or 14 country comparison of what are the factors that account for different countries' populations willingness to believe in bonkers conspiracies. Mm. And I think they had five factors, but one of those was uh, having a strong, well-funded public service broadcaster or broadcasters. Yeah. And um, so the conspiracy theories, which are, you know, being put about and are a serious threat to um, democracy, to liberal democracy, uh, there is evidence of Russian interference and reinforcement of these. There's all this murky stuff about QAnon and so on, uh, and you know Trump refusing to accept the result of the election and, and all of that. So I think that the sort of real divisive conspiracies are a significant threat and a very difficult threat. In the context of COVID-19 vaccines, I think uh, there's a much, and by the way, Although younger people use social media more, they're also, on average, more media savvy than older people and less likely to believe in those conspiracies. 
then there's a much larger group of people who are probably better described as vaccine cautious. Uh, and that is people who think this thing's been rushed through. I don't know what the side effects or the risks are. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to be among the first people and all of that. And interestingly, those people tend to be younger for a completely rational reason, if in a, a rather selfish reason, but, but a rational selfish reason, which is that in deciding whether to have the vaccine, I'm trading off two sort of sets of uncertainty. One of them is the risk that I'm going to suffer some kind of serious side effect from the vaccine. The other is I'm going to catch the virus. Now, younger people know they're less likely to catch the virus. And if they do catch the virus, they're more likely to sort of recover quickly and, and not die. Therefore, um, they, they would probably share with older people the same level of uncertainty about the side effects of the vaccine. But in relative terms, the vaccine is riskier to them because the virus is less risky. And so I think the role of the BBC, the BBC has clearly, as people say, had a good war, that people relied a lot on the BBC to explain the statistics, what was happening, the reasons it was happening, giving an opportunity to the government to explain what was going on and it's, and it's a highly chaotic strategy. Um, but, you know, nobody is blaming the BBC for the fact that the government has clearly made quite a mess of this thing. Mm. Um, and I think looking forward, now we've got a vaccine, there's really nothing the BBC or pretty much anyone else can do about the small number of serious anti-vaxxers. I think the Beeb has a role not only for explaining what is going on, but has a role for uh, reassuring the vaccine cautious, which is a much larger and more important proportion than the serious anti-vaxxers. So um, the Beeb is the most trusted news source. The public values that, and the public values the fact that broadcast news is regulated to be impartial. And so what we've got is a pretty successful system. And at a time like World War II or COVID, that's when it really comes into its own uh, in, in calming people and, and get, making sure that they, they, they are seeing the truth. And the Beeb has a real role there, as do the other um, broadcast news organisations. Yeah, and that's one of the things that the uh, Labour Party has been calling for recently. I think Jonathan Ashworth has been saying that um, there needs to be a real effort put into easing people's concerns and worries about the vaccine, sort of bringing the public confidence and the public uh, trust in a vaccine. Up. And, and I mean, the government would agree with that. Exactly. Um, yeah. but, it's, but it's clear that there is some tension between that and, and what Cummings wrote in 2004, yeah. let's put it like that. Yeah, exactly, because, um, I mean, you mentioned the Zurich University sort of study into, mm. uh, like, the, the relationship between a functioning public service broadcaster and the public's resilience to disinformation, I think, as it's stated in the book. Yes. I think the, the top-ranking countries were, uh, in, in terms of their resilience to disinformation, were, like, the sort of Scandinavian countries like mm. Norway and then uh, Great Britain was sort of just below that mm. obviously the the not a surprise at all but the very bottom was the USA yes. uh, who has a very weak and badly funded uh, public service broadcaster I mean that and then that largely correlates to a population who very much distrusts the media and is very susceptible. Well, and also very much distrusts government. And yeah, exactly. And it's, and that is actually a, that's part of U.S. exceptionalism. Is I don't think there's any other democracy in the world in which the the public in general are as hostile to their own local, state, and particularly federal government. Yeah, the U.S. Yeah, has yeah. a whole sort of frontier spirit thing. Um, and, you know, all these sort of cowboy movies and so on, which is an incredibly distorted picture of, of sort of mid-late mid, mid late 19th century Western US, um, but they sort of believe in it. And I think one 
thing which comes out of that is a tendency to think that, you know, everyone's kind of entitled to their own opinion and they're sort of entitled to their own facts as well. And um, the, obviously, if you put it like that, then they would say, no, of course, I don't think that. But in a funny way, they do. They behave as if they do. And that, so there's, there is there are some quite sort of things I, I honestly don't understand about sort of US culture to do with that. And I don't think we have that. I think, you know, we have multiple reasons why we, we, we don't think that. On the other hand, you know, with the country becoming more divided and with this sort of, uh, certainly in the last few years with Brexit and so on. Um, now, Michael Gove didn't say, um, you know, people shouldn't trust experts. What he did say, which is a valid statement, is people are sick and tired of being told what to think by experts. Mm. And I think that we may now have reached the point where that pendulum may swing a little bit back. It's still the case, I'm happy to say, that professors are very highly trusted by the public <laughs> in a way that journalists and politicians are not. Doctors, nurses, professors are sort of pretty much at the top. And it may be partly because of the way I think Brexit's going to pan out that the sort of anti-expert thing may become a little bit less in the next five years than in the last five years. Yours and, and Peter York's book, The War Against the BBC, I mean, it's, I'd, I'd highly recommend it to anyone listening, anyone who's interested in the BBC or wants to know how to sort of combat these, these attacks on the BBC, or just, just to like read more about how it's funded and, and, you know, different ideas about its future. There's a lot of stuff in there about Labour Party politics as well. Some things from the last election, which I know a lot of people will enjoy. There'll be a link in the show notes for anyone who wants to uh, check it out. And Can I just say, Louis, that the, although we say how an unprecedented combination of hostile forces is destroying Britain's greatest cultural institution, the final chapter, the conclusion, is conclusion, we have a choice. And so the, I think that sometimes people present the demise of the BBC as if it's something which is inevitable, what we call technological determinism, which is now we've got you know, Netflix, why do we still need public service broadcasting? And the truth is, we have a choice. Of course, the growing competition um, and the growing costs driven up by the by the online companies and so on, those are threats to the BBC. Interestingly, the relentless attempts by the right to persuade the public that the BBC is left-wing over many years have been extraordinarily unsuccessful. So one might have thought that all these attacks were a serious threat to the BBC. It turns out they're not, because the public actually relies to a great extent on its own experience of consuming BBC content and um, trusting the BBC. So the one real threat is the funding cuts. And that's why I say we have a choice. What's needed is the public and enlightened politicians to say we're going to stop this salami slicing of the funding okay we're not going to we're not going to cut the funding by another 30 percent in the next 10 years until we're eventually left like the us without proper a proper public service broadcaster we can simply solve this and actually the labor party policy announced last year uh, but not sort of um publicized very widely so far of saying, if we're going to have free TV licenses, obviously it's a welfare benefit. Obviously it should be paid for out of general taxation. I think that this is actually quite low-hanging fruit for the Labour Party because the cost is huge to the BBC, but it's tiny in terms of uh, public expenditure. It's absolutely tiny. The irony is Gordon Brown got no political benefit for introducing it because the, because the amount of money is so low. Um, but then this kind, it's the kind of thing which is terribly hard to reverse. And I think it's politically irreversible, but therefore it should still be paid for out of, 
out of general taxation. And that is the single most important policy I'd recommend to the Labour Party and the other opposition parties, is to say we're simply going to reverse the 2015, you know, Osborne thing, which which basically happened after he had six meetings with Rupert Murdoch. Mm -hmm. And it stinks. Brilliant. Well, all the different points, all the different points in the book that make a fantastic case for the BBC and the future of the BBC. And it's on it's on us in the Labour Party. As you say, it's low-hanging fruit. We need to take that and I guess just spread the word. Well, if if anyone is developing policy and wants to talk to me, I'm very more than happy to do so. I'm myself non-party political. So anyone who is genuinely trying to serve the public interest and will listen and look at the evidence, mm-hmm. which is clearly not the situation with Cummings, then um, you know, I'll work with anyone. But, but you know, I am clearly a sort of centrist granddad. <laughs> and therefore, you know, I I would have no difficulty talking to the Fabians or the Labour Party, um, you know, the sensible wing of the Labour Party, if 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 there's, you know, an effort to sort of develop this, you know, into into a more formal policy. Yeah. Having said that, I think the official Labour Party policy is the right one, but what you need to do is is communicate it. And I think that if you're saying we will restore free TV licenses for every household with someone age 75 plus, I have to say, I think that's a wrong policy because it includes some very rich households, but it's irreversible and we will pay for it out of general taxation. It will be a rounding error in, 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 you know, our expenditure plans. And I think that's got real mileage in just the same way as, you know, the the, the sort of school meals, the recent school meal things, that's been damaging to the Tories and, and good for the opposition parties. So I really do think this is low-hanging fruit. But if someone would like to come and chat to me about it, uh, who's actually you know formulating the policy, more than happy to talk to them. Fantastic. Well, um, yeah, thanks so much, Patrick, for joining us. It's been a pleasure. It's uh, been an absolute pleasure having you on. The War Against the BBC by Patrick Barwise and Peter York. Do go check it out. It's a fantastic read. And yeah, thanks for listening. 